Hey gang, welcome to episode 118 of the No Persinium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm Noah Nelson, coming to you from No Pro headquarters in Los Angeles. This week on the show, an old school version of No Pro, just the main interview, and even better, Zay is hosting. That's right, Zay Amsbury, our man in New York City, who will soon be our man around the world. Okay, still a few months to go, but still, our man around the world. Uh, He is talking with Teddy Bergman, who is the artistic director of the Woodshed Collective. Now, little known fact, because Zay is so much cooler than I am, um, everyone knows that I can fanboy out. I mean, hell, you you just say certain words, and I just squee and start acting like a (laughs) 12-year-old. Acting like a 12-year-old. I mean, let's be honest. Um, But Zay can fanboy out as well. And the Woodshed Collective's work is something that Zay is capable of fanboying out on. And I am very excited that he got to talk to Teddy. Um, Now, Zay's version of fanboying out is is very different from mine. But uh, you're going to hear a little bit of that in the episode to come. I can't attest to how much because I like to listen to this one along with you. So this is an experience we share together. I'll be listening to the episode as you're listening to the episode. It's it's quite wonderful, uh, this thing that we share. Woodshed Collective, for those of you who don't know, uh, they've been at this game for a long time. That's going to be in the interview. But before we get into that, let's do the little business that we need to do. First up, as always, the Patreon. Why? Um, because we need it, uh, patreon.com slash no proscenium. As I often say, uh, the Patreon, oh no, turn it off, fast forward. Look, the Patreon is the only financial support we get. Um, we don't get any, um, you know, business deals, you know, with folks, uh, you know, as I'll note in a second, we still have uh, the Future Storytelling Festival. We're still, you know, offering up a discount code there. That is what is called an in-kind uh, deal uh, in that there's no money being exchanged, just attention. It's an attention economy, and we're paying attention to each other and guaranteeing attention. Um, you're paying attention to us right now, and you're paying attention to us on Everything Immersive, which is like 2,100 people on it now. It just keeps growing. And you're paying attention to us on the website, noprescenium.com, where we just published uh, reviews about a $5,000 a ticket show uh, about, I, I chuckle, but uh, it's serious and it's 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 good. Um, is it $5,000 good? Uh, that's going to be something we're going to be talking about almost all month long. So we'll start that conversation in a little bit. Um, read that review. Just published a review about, um, about grief, which is a show here in Los Angeles. We published interviews in New York. We're getting interviews, uh, in, in, in the Boston area. This thing's growing and growing and growing. All of a sudden we have all these people helping us out and nobody's getting paid. And that's not Cool. So I just revised the um, the Patreon structure a bit. I, I moved around some of the goals. I moved the goalposts, people, because that's what I have to do. So our new goal, uh, our next milestone goal is is 500 a month. We're at 387 right now. So we're just like 113 bucks away. So we're not far away. And if everyone who listened to the show dropped a dollar on us, just a dollar, we would be there like in a heartbeat. 
less than we've actually clear. We only have goals going up to a thousand dollars, which involves like us getting deeper into VR. So um, I'm 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 serious here. Um, we're, we we are some broke people. Um, this is a labor of deep passion and love, and uh, it only exists through your grace. Um, yeah, we we offer up what we can. We offer up this work. Uh, we are there's 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 a whole whole litany of things I want to talk to you guys about about crowdfunding. I'm gonna save it not this week, uh, but right now, just let me let you know. We can use the help, even the smallest amount. And if you know someone who's into it, if you've got a friend who relies on the work that we do, uh, and they're not a backer and you're a backer, nudge them. We're not asking for the world. We're not even asking for $5. We just, just a dollar, a dollar from everybody. And I'll be happy $2 and I'll be really happy 20 bucks. And you know, anyway, um, enough. I also want to thank Ross Sigworth, who is our sustaining backer, which means, uh, aside from the fact that he's our superhero and keeps us going, it does mean he gets his name in every single episode of the show. So, you know, if that's the kind of thing you're into, think about it. It's not, it's not cheap, but think about it. Uh, yeah. Patreon.com slash no proscenium there enough, enough. I've done enough on that. Speaking as I did a moment ago. Fostfest. The Future of Storytelling Festival is not this weekend, but it's next weekend. I am so jealous of you all. A bunch of the folks are going to be there. I'm super excited about that. I know so many of you are going out there. Um, I am, I'm very, very happy that is happening. If you are still looking to get your Fostfest tickets, we've got a 20% off code for you that is good even on the three-day pass. NP20. NP20. It's going to get you 20% off on that. Like I said, no money exchange hands here. This is because the people at Faust dig us. We dig the people at Faust and all of us want to see you there. I wish I could be in for it, even for a day. Speaking of Faust, they've also got their summit and, and hopefully I'll get some more on that. Like I really, oh God, I'd love to go to the Faust summit. And speaking of summits, I've been working with the guys at Adventure Design Group and Epic Immersive on a design summit. It's we're, we're pulling together for January of next year, first weekend of the year, Saturday, January 6th, we are working on some deals to make the announcements of who is going to be there. I am getting very excited about who we're talking about. Like if I could tell you the lineup that's already in place or is about to be closed, you would freak the F out. And it's not going to be a lot of people who can go and it's going to be aimed at the creators. Um, we're, we're going to have to like, you know, kind of curate the guest list here. And I can't tell you how much it's going to cost because we got to do the math. It's like this, 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 this kind of chicken and egg thing. But if you want to know, if you want to get in on the alerts and be, be part of the invite list that we send out immersive design That's how we get your email. That's how we know you're interested in just the very idea itself and start looking at that weekend and trying to figure out. Our goal is to have that in, the information up and the ability to start, you know, selling tickets to people as soon as we can. Just a few pieces of ink need to dry before we can do that. Why? Because we don't want to sell you a bill of goods that we cannot deliver on. I may be too ethical for my own good, um, but 
given how I navigate things, uh, maybe, maybe it's, it's, it's for your good if it isn't necessarily for mine. Anyway, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that after the show is uh, done, after the interview is done, because we've got nothing else for you today except for Teddy Bergman of Woodshed Collective. But given who Woodshed Collective is, I mean, you know they've got K-pop right now. And as Zay's going to say at the beginning of the interview, like Catherine did the write-up uh, based on some early performances that they had. Um, you guys uh, are in that show is going through October 21st, if memory serves, at Ars Nova. This was recorded at Ars Nova. Oh, Nova. Zay's going to tell you all that. I'm going to shut up. Um, and we're going to enjoy this episode together. Oh, just like the old days. Gosh, I've missed this. Here we go. Hey, everybody out there. This is Zay Amsbury in New York City. Um, I am right now at Ars Nova in Manhattan with Teddy Bergman, as in Ingmar, Ingmar Bergman, I have just been told, <laughs> before I got dyslexic. That's, the only, that's the, only, the only likeness. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Teddy, are you the, do you have the position of artistic director with Woodshed Collective? Yes. All right. So, yeah. Teddy is the artistic director and also the director of... All of the pieces, right? Uh, not all of them, but uh, most of them over okay. the years I've directed. Yeah, and but our and our most re- and our most re- our last uh, at least our last three or four shows. Okay, and also Twelve Ophelias mm-hmm. and The Confidence Man right. and The Tenant. Got it. Cool. Yeah. So I think what we're going to do is Catherine um, has already written up K-pop. So uh, if you're listening to this, you haven't read it yet. Hop onto the site and check that out. Um, but for me, this is kind of special because the well, the first show that I saw that the word immersive was attached to because I certainly saw some wacky shit in warehouses in, back in the day that didn't carry um, the name immersive yet. Exactly, yes. exactly. And I hadn't, I wasn't um, at that time. I wasn't aware of the long history um, in in England uh, for this stuff. But the first show that I saw that had that term attached to it was The Confidence Man. And I'm a Melville nerd, although I had never read The Confidence Man. And so it was really exciting. And also, The Confidence Man came out in 2006, correct? Nine. 2009. But that still puts it three years before um, Sleep No More. Yeah, or like two and a half. Sleep No More, I think, was the spring of 11 that it started to appear. Yeah, yeah. So since then, although... Things are changing now, but for a long period of time, everyone in New York, the frame for what immersive is was sleep no more. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was very much uh, the confidence man. Mm -hmm. Um, But I want to take a few steps back before that. Um, So the first piece that you did, uh, to my understanding, in New York City is Twelve Ophelias, which was at McCarran Park. McCarran Park Pool. We We did two small productions before that that were... Um, one was a production of Blood Wedding, mm. and one which was not. I mean, it was a. It was very. It was much more traditional. And then we also did a production of a show called Never the Sinner by John Logan. But those were much smaller. Never the Sinner was like slightly more immersive as an adjective. It definitely was not an immersive show in the way we think of them now. But it was mm. sort of heading towards that. But Twelve Ophelias was really the first kind of large scale event immersive show that we did in that way. And how did you come to that form? Why do that for you? Why do that and not 
um, on a stage somewhere in a space somewhere. What was it for you that well, it spoke was, to you? It was sort of the, I mean, the company itself, which had started at Vassar College when a bunch of us were undergrads there together. And the way we made, we did establish shows. We did productions of Hedda Gobbler and the Scottish play and um, uh, Griselda Gambaro's Antigona Furiosa, like lots of, um, I mean, established texts. But that as we were creating them, we were, we were very collaborative the way the company began. Everybody sort of designed the shows together, acted in the shows together. We picked someone sort of halfway down the line to be the quote-unquote director, but was basically just one person standing outside of being on stage, being like, this looks okay, because it was so sort of utopian and undergrad and collective. <laughs> but because of that, design was always a huge critical component to what we were doing, and design being really integrated into the performance and being thought about across all departments. So there were always these things that we were doing in these shows that were sort of bursting at the boundaries of a regular show that I think we're sort of setting the stage for us to do this kind of work. Like, we did had a gobbler, we burned a tremendous amount of incense underneath the seats so that people felt like they were choking on the smell of flowers. We did Antigona <laughs> Furiosa, and we saw, I sat in a cafe and served black coffee to people for the whole show, That's so good, people left if, so if, wired. Anyone, any, anyone who has a theater degree, an undergrad theater degree, has seen a production of Alice in Wonderland in the Woods uh-huh. and Hedda Gobbler. 100%. million Hedda Gobblers. 100%. Um, so it, we, it was sort of naturally, I think, in the DNA of the company. And then... Now, the, the collective ambassador, was that composed of... Were you, all, were you all theater students? Were you actors? Were you directing students? Was it just a big mixture? It was a mixture. I mean, people were, a lot of people were involved in the drama department. Some were not. I mean, I was a philosophy major as an undergrad, as uh, were a fair, actually, number of my compatriots. There was a couple poli-sci majors, some English... I mean, Vassar mm-hmm. is so liberal arts, yeah. and there's just nothing to do in Poughkeepsie. Yeah. So you end up just spending all of your free time doing things on the campus yeah. because you're sort of cloistered away and you're with wonderful people and you're yeah. you're you're encouraged to be very self-possessed there. And so... I went to UC Santa Cruz, so take that, add a lot of pot in the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> like Similar deal. Yeah. Um, so... Um, we uh, everybody had come from theatrical. A lot of people had theatrical backgrounds of one sort or another. Whether it was high school, whether it was at the school itself. There's a huge th- undergrad theater scene at Vassar, and even surrounding there, are many there are a bunch of theater groups. Actually, Woodshed Theater Ensemble, the group we started, still exists at Vassar College as a wow. company that people audition into. It's very wonderful um, as a sort of student legacy there. Um, but the sort of seeds of this of of immersive or immersive qualities was in the work from the very beginning, and then with the particular opportunity that sprung up for us with this show Twelve Ophelias, which had never had a professional production in New York, um, and we were looking for a more radical way to set it and to put people even more so in the world of the play, and then. Uh, the play, which is a wonderful script by a writer named Carrie Dedsvich, mm-hmm. reimagines Hamlet's Ophelia coming back to life to sort of figure out what went so terribly wrong. And the world she finds herself in is sort of um, like an Appalachian backwoods version of, of Elsinore. We sort of <laughs> called it Denmark by way of deliverance. Uh-huh. Um, and it's a sort of broken, poetic script. And we want it to sort of, and it sort of serves like a memory play. And we want it to kind of put people in this kind of fractured world of her experience. And we got in contact with 
the Parks Department and at the time this group called the Open Space Alliance in North Brooklyn that was administering McCarran Park as a performance venue because mm-hmm. this was 2008 which was the last year that McCarran Park yep. Pool was a performance venue before it underwent renovations and turned back into a public pool. Yep. So our, we got... Sadly. Sadly, it was an amazing and yeah. really unique performance venue. And they had huge concerts, like Wilco performed there that summer, yeah. Regina Spector, all these amazing people. That was one of the... So for those of you um, not in New York or new to New York or have only been in New York post-Pool McCarran Park, um, McCarran Park is a... Um, McCarran Park is a park um, uh, in Williamsburg or Greenpoint? Uh, on the Greenpoint, border. On the border. Really on the border, yeah. Um, and Williamsburg, as I'm sure most of you are aware, is this sort of... Um, I guess it's no longer up and coming, but it's the, it's the, the hip... It's sort of the Silver Lake of um, of New York, or I guess it was the Silver Lake of New York. Now everyone's starting to have kids and go to really expensive restaurants. <laughs> um, and McCarran Park is just this nice little park. Um, and then there's this big pool, like this just big, big, empty, open-air public pool. Um, and they used to have concerts there and shows there. And it was sort of the place where you'd go and you'd be there in the afternoon running to 12 people you knew and like one ex mate and yeah. etc. Yeah. Find roommates, that sort of thing. I mean it was actually built Robert Moses built the pool. It was a public works thing from it was like yeah. in the in the twenties or thirties and it's the size of three football fields. They yeah. described it as an urban beach. I mean it is quite massive. That's so Robert Moses y. Yes indeed. Um and so we set that show in the middle of that pool and the audience was seated on all different locations in the middle of the pool. Um and they sort of it enabled us actually to because the pool is so big we could put audience in the center and then characters would sort of appear from the fringes of the pool kind of out of darkness into the middle of this mm-hmm. um, and we worked at that time with a with a kind of roots rock and bluegrass band called the Jones Street well, they were then called the Jones Street Boys then later changed their name to the Jones Street Station who created an original score for the piece and played along live with it every night. So it had this sort of like revivalist vibe about it too in the middle of this pool to kind of summon Ophelia back to life. And it was wild. It was like a really big for the company kind of coming out party because we 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 had charged free admission because of our deal with the parks department. We had about four. Now now let's 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 yeah. here. So 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 one of the things that Woodshed Collective is well known for and got quite a bit of buzz about when you first came in was this free thing mm-hmm. so 12 Ophelia's was free Lilac was free the tenant was free mm-hmm. um, Empire Travel Agency um, and uh, the most recent one does it hurt when I do this does it yeah. touch this does it hurt when I do this, do this yeah um, was that part was that something that was baked into the original conception of the group or did it sort of dovetail with you arranged with the, with the parks, uh, the parks department, and then you carried it forward. How did that come to be? It sort of got occasioned initially, but it, it was at first practical, and then became ideological because right. at first it was the nature of our agreement with the parks department because we were sort of by a bunch of producing things. We it was the arrangement that we struck with them for u- the use of the space on as many dates as we had, which was going on. Our show was happening in the pool around all of these other really big events, like huge concerts and stuff. Um, and then the outpouring, obviously, like outpouring, we saw like the our audience size quintupled. The engagement we were getting from people was so massive compared to what it had been as just a, another theater company renting a theater and doing something mm-hmm. downtown in New York. Mm-hmm. That we realized there was 
culture was already in that in that point in the city getting people getting priced out of culture right and priced mm-hmm. out of the opportunity to engage and also I think as we were developing an immersive aesthetic in which we were asking an audience to take an active role in their experience and be participatory in that respect we wanted to fully enfranchise them to not sit back and say I paid this much money what are you going to show me right. but, but for our tickets to be an invitation to participate and so pu- putting their the audience's labor on an equal footing with our performance labor uh, opened up for us a really 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 fertile period of creating work and engaging people in a very very different way now did you because when you read I remember reading the uh, one of the Joe Papp biographies mm-hmm. and one of the struggles that was depicted was his struggle to say, look, even though this free Shakespeare in the Park thing is going to be free and in the park, it will also be good. Mm -hmm. Like there's this idea that, oh, if it's free, it couldn't possibly be. Of course. How did you engage with that? Were there any direct conversations or confrontations or engagements surrounding that? Um... No, not really, because the work we were making, I, I think the kind of things that that fit that narrative usually have a bit more of a kind of community theater-based mm-hmm. vibe to them often, right? Like if it's for the benefit of the public in a certain way, that it's like a group of community folks getting together, let's say, and putting on Richard III somewhere. Right, right. This was an H.S. Four on the Right, day exactly, for the edification and enrichment of their local community. The kind of work we were doing was not does not fit that particular narrative in any way and I also think we felt and the, the I would say the the caliber of artists that we were trying to collaborate with were not were, were very high and I think at that point we felt like you know we'll just let the work speak for itself mm-hmm. and have a really robust engagement with press and media as well to cover it yes which you, was had always, very, you had very high level reviews from the from the go yeah which was always a big part of our strategy because that obviously legitimated the project as being part of our practice as opposed to some kind of vanity or or a, or a way to hedge against the quality or something like that that was just part yeah. of our practice so so once 12 Ophelia's wrap, wrapped up and you had the you had the free thing yeah um with, when you moved on to the Confidence Man and the Lilac, yeah, that was not a relationship with the Parks Department. Clearly, that was no. something new. No, that that boat, the Lilac, where we staged the Confidence Man, was it was an eighty year old decommissioned Coast Guard ship, a lighthouse tender. It was a boat that had been used to go and service lighthouses mm-hmm. for the Coast Guard. Um, and you know, New York is an amazing city filled with many different kinds of spaces and many different kinds of characters. And we, through actually one of our company members' uh, father, was sort of in the one of the jobs that he was doing for a long time was moving people's boats for them, sailing them to different locations. So we had sort of a large network of people with boats or who knew about boats in the boating community. And we were from the beginning when we were commissioning and developing this adaptation of The Confidence Man, we wanted to set it on a boat. Um, and so we were looking for oh, a space. Wait, so let's take a couple steps back then. Yeah. So, so for 12 Ophelia's, that was a script that... That, that was an established show, text. right? So yeah. then for The Confidence Man, you wanted to do an adaptation of The Confidence Man. What Correct. was it about that material that, that drew, uh, drew you in? Well, because as we were interested formally in splitting an audience up more and more and having mm-hmm. them have a kind of diverse experience from one person to the next... One of the things that's structurally true about the confidence band is what the the, the there's so many narratives happening simultaneously on that boat in a, in a contained space in a contained space yeah. right and it almost is like I, the 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 notion of a con man in that book 
is like there is no it's really hard to tell whether there's one con man or a lot of con people operating on that boat because the uh-huh. lines between one character and the next are kind of muddy I mean people sort of think of that book as a little bit of a like proto postmodern thing that he did towards the end of his career Melville mm-hmm. and this idea of um, the the notion of a of, of con artists being like a like an epidemic overrunning a space was very appealing to us, both formally from the from the standpoint of setting an audience loose and what is the thematic thing that's going to tie all the vignettes together. The notion of a con game at work and all of these different iterations seemed like a wonderfully fertile set of material for us. And also topically, when we were developing it in 2008 into 2009, right around the time of the financial collapse mm-hmm. and right at the sort of like low point of, of, of the George W. Bush presidency and the ascendancy of Barack Obama in that time, this question of like the ebbing and flowing of your confidence in institutions yeah. and in also systems which was very... knack, and it seems like by choice for topicality, which we'll get to more. Um, I, so as we're talking about the confidence, man, just for, for because this was a show was a while ago, yes. no one's going to see it. Um, uh, and a lot of people here are listening from L.A., Got it. And around the world. So The Confidence Man was a piece that took place, um, as Teddy said, um, on the Lilac, which is a boat that was on the Hudson. And when you get there, um, you're, my experience was you're broken up into groups. And there are tour groups, and you have mm-hmm. a tour guide. Mm-hmm. Um, and the tour guide starts to take you through this boat, and there are different channels, and you see different scenes in different orders. Mm-hmm. And the tour guide themselves is is a character who gets, mm-hmm. who in, in my case, got more and more over the top. Mm-hmm. And you started to sort of catch them in lies, and mm-hmm. it started to seem like they were a con man. Correct. Um, and it was really, really unclear what was true and what was, was mm-hmm. what wasn't true. Mm-hmm. And then, about halfway through, the tour guide went away. Mm-hmm. And um, Noah and immersive design folks often talk about the difference between a sort of pure sandbox, like uh, Sleep No More, and something that's more on the rails, like Then She Fell, where you mm-hmm. know exactly where you are at all times. Mm-hmm. One of the things I really enjoyed about The Confidence Man is it splits the difference. Mm-hmm. So you have a kind of narrative and experiential vector, mm-hmm. but then you're free and you can mm-hmm. do whatever you want, mm-hmm. but you have like a kind of channel that, you, that you've gone on initially. So it has both that wonderful discomfort and that wonderful sense of not quite getting everything, of the boundary always being forever outside of your reach, but also there's a little comfort in that you, you have some sense of what the frame is. Mm-hmm. All right. So, um, so that's you, a great description. <laughs> um, so, so you get to wait, wait. So we're getting to the free thing, yeah. And you were talking me through why the confidence man. Oh yeah. Um, well, that was also part of our. I mean, again, some of that was about our. Uh, I mean, in that case, it was on the one hand again ideological, something that had grown out of what we were able to do with audience engagement and also the participatory nature of the shows mm-hmm. about enfranchising our audiences to take an active role and I think in that show in particular as you described the moment at which your tour guides uh, abandoned you or got conned into the various stories that they were serving as kind of narrators for was a moment in which we were asking an audience to enfranchise themselves, explore, decide what they believe is true and false, test the limits of their own confidence and all of that to us felt like a game best played if you didn't feel like you were there to get a reward for the amount of money you had paid for your ticket in that respect, right? Mm -hmm. And also in a show in which we were trying to ask questions about 
the belief and value that you place in money itself, because that was a large portion of some of the cons. They were all, some of them were purely financially based and about like trust in money as a thing and as a means of, of, of uh, organizing an economy. It also allowed us, I think in a certain sense, to have more free play around that idea. Right. Um, and it also enabled us on a practical producing side to strike a very particular arrangement with that boat which was under the care of a sort of board of trustees who was attempting to turn it into a floating museum. And they were very keen to partner with us because they wanted a lot more press and audience exposure about this very unique vessel that was sitting there floating at Pier 40 in the mm-hmm. Hudson River. So it was also sort of a very kind of synchronistic partnership. And you, did you bring in playwrights to work on this project or, or was, the, was, was all the text generated from within? So we collaborated with a wonderful playwright named Paul Cohen on that. And mm-hmm. basically he generated a tremendous amount of text that, that we worked with him to edit, curate, and organize to the experience. And um, just as my personal curiosity, yeah. um, there was there's a there's a, a room, there was a room on this is, I'm trying to reconstruct this memory, there was a there's a moment or a room I guess space and time are the same but there was a place on the boat where there were people who were writing and having seemed to be having conversations about putting the piece together like mm-hmm. it was sort of like this this meta moment in mm-hmm. the piece was that something that was in the script that he put together or was that developed. Um, as the piece was developed, like was that there from the inception, or was that something that came along as you were working through the I think project? That was something that came along as we were working on it, because the show was so sort of meta theatrical in certain respects right. that it was like attempting to complete the to make the object of the thing sort of speak to itself a little bit. Cool. So after the Combinance Man was the tenant. Yeah. Um, tell me a little about a bit about the because with the tenant you, you brought in a number of different. Um, yeah. uh, well-known, I mean, New York well-known playwrights to work mm-hmm. on the text for and all the individual scenes. Mm-hmm. And and I remember I remember the experience of that. Like, those scenes were, they felt complete. Mm-hmm. Whereas, the use the word vignette for the scenes in the comedy, and they definitely felt more vignette-y. Mm-hmm. Um, but these scenes felt like complete, full scenes uh-huh. of your experience. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the development of the tenant and sure. the choice to go with these... Uh, well-known, very skilled, very talented playwrights. Well, the 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 tenant right is a was started. It's a novella, which is what we used as our source material as well. It was very famously adapted into a movie by Roman Polanski, and the movie. Just to give you a sort of sense of the world that the show comes out of, the movie um, is part of Polanski's apartment trilogy, along with Rosemary's Baby and Repulsion, and they're all and the tenant. They're all stories of people, psychological thrillers about people going losing their minds in apartments, basically. Um, and I knew the movie first, and then I read the book after that, and was very um, enamored of the book as a piece of immersive source material, because you get a central narrative about this guy, and you get these very enigmatic, enigmatic fragments about his neighbors, and his neighbors who he assumes things about, uh, and also... It, the big question of the whole story is whether he's having paranoid delusions or whether it's true that his neighbors are attempting to drive him mad. Um, and, and and more specifically, the person who rented the apartment before the protagonist had also been driven mad and ended up uh, committing suicide. And his increasing question is whether, the protagonist's question is whether these neighbors are attempting to have him follow the same fate, turn him into this previous tenant um, and push him over the edge. And so... The idea of being able to take those wisps of information about the other people in the building and build them out into complete storylines to basically make a living building that you could explore um, seemed like a wonderful 
set of source material for an immersive show to give people access to this sort of 1960s crumbling Parisian tenement. Um, and within which allow, I mean, I grew up in New York, so also the like question of what's going on in the other apartment is like a, it's like a childlike question for me, of, like what the mm-hmm. hell's going on in the rest of my building. Um, but also more centrally, I think that show was about, looked, if you looked at each of those other tenants in the building up close, they all were dealing with a sense of real personal alienation for one reason or another, mm-hmm. but then collectively they were capable of great malice towards this other person uh, uh, as a group. So it was sort of a ethical and moral question, I think, about individuals as good, individuals as inherently good or inherently facing a lot of unique, uh, facing a lot of sort of similar challenges, but then when coming together and organizing against one person or an idea of a person as being a source of your problem, that then they're capable of great malice. Um, to answer your previous question, we were interested in each of those different stories having a kind of unique voice and tone to them as well, and a really kind of fully lived-in experience. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we made the choice to pair each of these different neighbor stories with a different playwright we were excited about collaborating with and working with them to kind of thread these basically six or seven plays together into one holistic evening. And we ourselves did the adaptation work of the central storyline, the the original protagonist storyline, and then sort of wove those in in concert with the other work that those playwrights had done, which was an amazing august group of folks who have since gone on to even more amazing things. I mean, so what was a wonderful, really had had a... it's a particular moment in time for that generation of playwrights in New York. And what was the? It really was. Yeah. What was the venue for that? We were at the West Park Presbyterian Church on 86th and Amsterdam. <coughs> Mainly, that church complex <coughs> is a church, and then there's a. It's all dates from the late ni- mid to late 19th century, and there's a parish house attached to it. So we really installed our world through this five-story parish house from the basement to the top floor and then also use some of the environs around the actual sanctuary itself of their church. That church has an incredible history of both art and social activism. In fact, mm-hmm. Joe Papp performed in their balcony theater at one point with his Riverside Shakespeare group, um, which he produced for a little bit. Also, like, God's Love We Deliver is in that building. There's a huge portion of uh, anti-nuclear... I mean, they had, like, both a great history of art and social activism in that building, and were really very open to our presence there. So that was a very cool partnership. Now, at this point... Um, so this is a much larger space. Uh-huh. Um, and the scale seemed to seem to jump a bit from mm-hmm. from the confidence man to the tenant. Um, how how are you? And it's still free. Still free. How how did the um, were there any lessons that you feel like you learned from the confidence man that you brought forward to working on the tenant in terms of working with audiences? Um, I mean, the ten- the tenant was a little bit more of a sort of like a like sandboxy, like 100%. We were sort of let in, walked around, experienced the spaces, mm-hmm. scenes um, repeated throughout the evening. Uh, and that one they didn't actually. Oh, they were totally there. there was no, but there was a video system that the sort of when you each chapter that yes. corresponded to yeah. the story of the guy who's going crazy in the building was either you saw it live or it was broadcast to wherever you were by an old TV that we wired up to show a, a different vignette as it went along. Um, so the next, I believe the next piece that you did was Empire Travel Agency. Yeah. Um, and that one worked, worked, worked on scale in a very different way. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about Empire Travel Agency? Sure. Empire Travel Agency was an experience designed for four audience members at a time. 
that was a grail quest, basically, that crisscrossed around Lower Manhattan. It covered about, I think, like six or seven square miles in total. And you, you, you thought you were going on a... Um, you signed up for something that seemed almost like a living social or Groupon style experience that was like, learn about the mysteries of New York and have a glass of wine kind of marketing. And then you met at a payphone on a corner in the financial district, which rang. We rigged these payphones to ring to you, these sort of phony payphones. And then you, from that point, you were off to the races, basically. And increasingly, you're almost not entirely dissimilar from some of the form of the con man, where you had a tour guide who you met initially, but very quickly that person disappeared and you went down a dark rabbit hole. And the rabbit hole you found yourself in was a kind of black market in which all of these people in New York are competing for the recipe and ownership of a mystical substance that promises its um, its user and, and possessor with kind of um, visions of the future, basically, that it would allow you to kind of hedge the market. So like. There were real estate guys who were after it because they wanted to know what was going to be the next hot market in New York and that they would buy everything up. There was an art dealer who wanted it because it was going to give her visions of who was going to be the next great artist. It was basically how do you hedge the future uh, was, the, was the sort of idea underneath this magical substance. But r as odd as that sounds, really... Really, for us, it was a story about gentrification. I know that sounds like the, the, a very odd thing to sort of draw out of that, but... We had found that after the tenant, because of New York real estate, increasingly difficult to find large footprints of spaces to perform these shows indoors. Mm -hmm. And so and so we ended up taking to the streets with it and started and making a show about the difficulty we had finding spaces, which was the sort of magic of New York at getting squeezed out by the amount of money that is in this city and how corporate mm -hmm. the city is at this point. And so in many respects, our little kind of fantasy of a tour around the city was a means both to comment on that and give people a very unique experience of making the city come alive in a way that they were not, was not money controlled. And so it was also free again. But it was four audience members at a time. You traveled by car, by subway, by foot, um, all across a bunch of multiple locations that culminated in a series of rooms we designed in the South Street Seaport. Oh, are those the were those the same rooms are used for? Oh, I see. Um, now, Empire Travels Agency was set up by with a Kickstarter, mm -hmm. and the Kickstarter provided some of the funding for mm -hmm. it. Um, taking a step back to the tenant, sure. In terms of and I'm this is just I'm curious. Yeah. In terms of funding for the tenant, was that because that was pre sort of pre Kickstarter era? We had a small Kickstarter actually for the tenant, but uh -huh. it was before Kickstarter was as ubiquitous as yeah. it is now. Yeah. So are these are these um, are these private donations that you're working with? The vast majority of our funding comes from private donations. We get government grants mm -hmm. as well. I mean, you know, as far as that relating to ticket prices, most theater companies in New York show to show do not subsidize their costs with ticket prices. It covers a bare, bare, bare minimum mm -hmm. of what they do, and so it's true across the country. Yes, in nonprofits, right? Yeah. So. Having, you know, so in a certain sense, we were able, having, offering free tickets did a bunch of things for us. On the one hand, it, it, it did all of the kind of ideological and engagement work. It also enabled us to fundraise in different ways than we would otherwise, because we're, we're, we're very clear about when you're giving us money to subsidize this work, it is being given directly over to the public, right? So your, your dollar has a really appreciable impact as opposed to 
in certain other nonprofits, I think it's a, at times a more difficult sell for people to say, we need your help and we're charging X amount of money per ticket, you know what I mean? Which can get quite high at this point. Um, uh, and it also enables us to strike really particular arrangements with the venues that host us because we're not trying to make money off of their venue in a particular way. So it gives us some flexibility. It, it has traditionally given us some flexibility in certain regards um, and, and, and helped us in our fundraising efforts as well. Cool. Um, and then after Ember, actually, have you have you heard of Linked Dance Theater? Sorry? Have you heard of Linked Dance Theater? No. Linked Dance Theater, they're a sort of narrative site-specific dance company. Um, and I just saw a piece they did yesterday called Like Real People Do, which uh, which is really wonderful, and you should see it. Catherine already wrote a review. Um, it tells the story of a relationship moving from space to space from, uh, it starts in Tompkins Square Park, and it goes over to the Hudson. Um, and they stop at moments and depict parts of the relationship, and it's mostly movement and dance, but there's some text. Cool. But it's that same thing of like using using the background of the city as a set, so, yes. you, so there's no paying for the venue. Right. I mean, this is like a, I mean, they're linked dance, they're great, but they're definitely sort of a shoestring operation. Right. Um, but it really afforded them to sort of let the history of New York do uh -huh. the production design for them. Yeah, that was definitely true of Empire Travel Agency as well. Yeah. It was, it was, we were, we were recontextualizing a lot of areas for our purposes yeah. and giving them sort of fictionalized histories and identities and things that sort of allowed you to look at it, your surroundings a little bit differently. Yeah, I mean, that was sort of like the wild, because I, I did not see Empire Travel Agency, but one of the the sort of magic tricks of this piece of the link dance theater piece was it because it was sort of capturing New York like even the littlest smallest movement or, or gesture it could sort of contain it like used the power of New mm -hmm. York to to um, to to enchant the performance itself mm -hmm. it was very good mm -hmm. cool um, so then you did um, does it hurt when I does it, yeah, does it hurt when I knew this was it was actually just a workshop production of something, yeah. an idea we were testing out, um, which we're still in development about. Um, so it's definitely not in the same sort of categories as other pieces, which were fully advertised and sold tickets to the public and mm -hmm. got reviewed and all that stuff. This was really, it's so hard, you know, at times with this kind of work to workshop them without an audience. So mm -hmm. part of what we learned, because we had done this with the first iteration of Empire Travel Agency too, we had done sort of a workshop style setting where we invited people in to see pieces of it and what we learned was so valuable to the eventual shape of that piece that we tried to do that as well but does it hurt uh, about a year ago where we, we sort of built a kind of beta beta version of it mm -hmm. to test it out which was and that piece we were developing was about um, standardized patients standardized patients which are the practice of hiring actors to go into medical schools to impersonate illnesses for the di to sharpen the diagnostic skills of of um, would-be physicians um, and they're it's both a way to test their diagnostic skills but also their bedside manner or how empathetic they are and which we were very interested about the notion of a in a real world performance artifact like standardized patients in which somebody is being tested on their empathy was an interesting set of source material we felt like to explore in an immersive setting about the boundaries between two people in real time and real space, a performer and a non-performer, what the distinction between those ideas are, and how empathy gets generated in a can, setting Can like you that. talk a little bit about, about, how, about how that workshop was executed, about the... 
Yeah, we invited people in, and then they got a brief orientation, and then they got a lab coat, and, and they were brought into an examination room, and they had an inner earpiece in which a sort of doctor mentor was giving them sets of instructions about how, what to do, what questions to ask. Um, and then it became clear sort of over it that there was a secondary relationship going on between the person in your ear and the patient that you were sort of a conduit for, which enabled some sort of a kind of a bit of a poetic lift off at certain points about where you stood as an audience member between these two people and how the sort of nature of the performance itself worked as the sort of setup continued of you trying to uncover what was wrong with this person. Um, and the, the, the illnesses that we chose were sort of eso intentionally like esoteric and more metaphorical illnesses. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had one about an illness called something called Cotard syndrome, which is a psychological condition that can be brought on by a physical trauma, some kind of which a person believes that they are already dead, mm -hmm. and you're trying to convince them that they are in fact still alive which was interesting for us from a standpoint of performer, a performer versus a spectator, real versus unreal, like what exactly is going on in front of you. Um, uh, and then there was another one in which somebody, um, it's an inner ear condition in which the, there's a, something that is deformed within your, a bone inside of your ear that enables you to hear everything going on inside of your own body. So you can hear your own heart racing, you, the sound of your own voice is like torture, like it gives you this very sort of solipsistic, intense uh, experience of yourself, um, which was also something for us to, against the kind of limits of solipsism and empathy and reaching out to another person seemed like an apt metaphor for us to explore, but it was very much in the sort of workshop phase of what is useful about the situation, um, what kinds of engagement, what performance and techn technology techniques were yeah. sort of useful. So I, they, I, I, I mean, I've been to a lot of shows and that like having, having the in-ear mic and being told what to say and how to interact with this person I'm interacting with, um, often in ways that felt like contradictory to what the empathetic feelings that I was having. I mean, mm -hmm. it was a very wild, very, mm -hmm. very intimate, very intense, uh -huh. um, funny sort of harrowing experience. Uh -huh. But uh, what sorts of feedback did you get back from the participants? I mean, all kinds. Some people really started to would like get into it with their inner ear person and be like, exactly as you said, like I don't want to do that. Like this is weird. you know, like that kind of trying to break away and off mm -hmm. the reservation. Some people I think who found the comfort of being led along by someone in that respect quite um, wonderful and interesting. I think. It was a mixed bag. I mean, you know, so much of the kind of form of feedback that we asked for from people at that point is just like, what are aspects that work for you? What felt like mm -hmm. a hindrance to you? Where were you engaged and where weren't you? And then sort of piecing together the commonalities of those yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So that uh, brings us to K-pop. Uh-huh. Um, which, uh, it's not like Korea's in the news at all, ever, anymore. Yeah, no. Um, so tell me a little bit about, well, first tell me a little bit about the, because uh, this, this is a bit of a break working with Ars Nova um, in, the, in the Ars Nova space in Manhattan. Um, how did that relationship come, come into play and your relationship with the, the company that you're working with to do this? Uh, well, so the show is, a, is, a, is an Ars Nova production. They're producing it in association with Woodshed and also with a, a, another wonderful theater company called the Mai Theater Company. Mm -hmm. um, I hadn't, I've known both of them for a really long time. I mean, I, I outside of which I'd also work as an actor, and I had performed at Ars Nova a number of times over the years, so I knew the folks that ran this theater. 
Um, and so, and knew the Mai folks from around as well. And so began a conversation first with Ars Nova and then with Mai about taking, about devising uh, an immersive musical around the genre and phenomenon of K-pop. And so... Now, is K-pop, is this, is this an affection of yours? Oh, I love it. Ah. I adore it. Yeah. I think it's an incredible... It is a virtuosic musical form in that it is an amalgamation of basically 40 to 50 years of pop music into the most addictive, addicting cocktail you can imagine. Um, it feels to me, in certain, my experience of it is it, it, and it also reflects, it also holds within it like 60 to 70 years of Korean post-colonial history mm-hmm. and the way the music is produced, the influence it draws from, and what it represents in its unbelievable success throughout Asia and the world, with the lone exception, really, of the United States. Um, you know, Seoul is an inc- Seoul in the Korean the, the Korean entertainment industry in Seoul is an unbelievably powerful enterprise, and is really to me represents a significant challenge. The way we as Americans think of Hollywood and our country as being the sort of light that all culture flows out of, the, and I think sort of destabilizes our own quite privileged view of ourselves as being the culture makers in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so being able to create an immersive experience for a New York audience that they could encounter this phenomenon in a particular way that our hope to entertain, delight, and also sort of challenge some self-perceptions um, was a very inspiring thing that kept us going for the years it's taken us to develop the piece. How long has the piece been in development? About three and a half years. Mm-hmm. And you just got extended, right? Yeah, we we did. We opened the show on Friday. We just announced a two-week extension. It's really been selling like hotcakes, which is really wonderful to see that there's an appetite for the show. Um, uh, yeah, we, 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 are, we are running until October 21st, which is unfortunately when we must close the show by virtue of when we no longer have the building that we're into, because mm. ideally we would have loved to keep the thing going forever and a day. We must close October 21st. Yes. Um, well, that's fantastic. We're, we, uh, we are about out of time. Cool. Um, what, do you have any, any other stuff on the horizon that you're working on? Anything we can look forward to? Any uh, I mean, we're still, collective solo productions? Um, we're, de- I mean, we're still developing Does It Hurt When I Do This. We have a couple of other little nuggets that we're starting to work on, some of which are solo things, some of which may be co-productions. Um, it's been really wonderful getting to collaborate with these two other companies as well who bring a wealth of expertise and also support know-how and all all the help you all the help you get from really extremely talented and thoughtful producers, which these have been, um, and also, you know, this this project too, K-pop has afforded us the ability to work with just amazing collaborators outside the company. We have the yeah. guy who wrote the book, Jason Kim, Max Vernon, Helen Park who wrote the music, Jen Weber who did the choreography, all our designers, Gabe Evanson who did the production design and sets, who's one of my old Woodshed partners, Will Pickens who did sound is a Woodshed guy. I mean, it's been just a dream team of people. Fantastic. Well, thanks for sitting down with us. Thank you. And uh, if you're in New York, so you can snag up some of those tickets, must close October 21st. Check it out, arsnovanyc.com for your tickets. All right. Bye, folks. Cool. Once again, want to thank Teddy Bergman for being our guest on the show. You can find Woodshed Collective at woodshedcollective.com. They're also at Woodshed NYC on the Twitter. 
Oh, Twitter. Um, let's not even go there. But let's thank Zay for being the host today. I've missed this. I truly have. I've also missed our After Dark Talks. We need more of those. Speaking of After Dark Talks, um, the Patreon is supposed to have some live streaming on it. It is. I am a busy madman running from thing to thing to thing. Uh, to be perfectly honest, uh, I can't keep up with the pace anymore on my, on my own. Um, and indeed my day job is like, Hey man, you're stressing yourself out and you're becoming useless to us. And I'm like, Oh yeah, maybe I am. Um, I, 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 that's, that's, that's my business to deal with and I'll deal with it. Don't you worry. But here's the deal. The hard part about the streaming for the Patreon backers, and indeed, I want everyone you know to hang out. Don't be like, oh man, he's talking about the money thing. No, 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 no. This involves you too. It does. Is that we we can never find a time. Ha <laughs> ha. We could never find a time when everyone can get together. And um, I am actually kind of community minded, so I'm always trying to be like, when when can we all hang out? And and people are like, oh now 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 now, and it's 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 like you know totally different. So what I'm gonna have to do is I'm just gonna have to pick a time and say, hey, I'm available at this time and I'm gonna go on. And if no one's around, to heck with it. I'll just talk into the void. Because the Patreon uh, deck now has the ability to uh, live stream off of YouTube uh, directly into Patreon. And uh, it's a beta mode, so it's gonna be buggy. But, and we do now have a, a, a YouTube channel we have two things in there. They're the 360 videos, one that we did at the Speakeasy Society, one that we did in another room. We're lining up some more of those so that we can have a lot of fun with that. Um, and those are going to be in there, but also are going to be live streams. So we're going to do No Pro After Dark on YouTube. It's going to be Hangout style. Um, it'll be clunky. It'll be unprofessional for a while. We are, you know, cobbling this thing together as we go, uh, as people like to say, and it terrifies me, building the plane as we're flying it. No, those planes usually crash. But the nice thing is, is that we are, um, we're, we're pretty far along in our, in our journey here. So I don't actually expect us to crash. I expect us maybe to lose altitude suddenly and have some turbulence. Um, that being said, look for that even this month. They will be very informal. They will be very chill. And I hope you don't mind my hair looking like a mess. Huh. There. Said that. That also means we're going to be like revising some of the levels. Um, we're going to be looking at adding some stuff on that side of the Patreon uh, in terms of the rewards. Um, there's, there's sort of a whole thing I want to talk to you guys about. Um, later about crowdfunding and about um, sort of, well, just just the flow of this business and the community and access and all, all that sort of stuff. I'm being vague right now because some of these things are sensitive and I just, I tr I'm trying to lay out a, a, a logic so that people can kind of follow along what I see. Because sometimes you can see things, but you can't quite articulate it to folks. This is often the issue when I'm you know, writing a review as well. It's like, how do I explain what I'm seeing 
for folks who haven't seen it yet, right? You, you've probably encountered this when you're talking to your friends about immersive. You're like, oh, oh yeah, it's this thing that look on their face, right? That's sort of where I live most of the time. Um, maybe that's a humble brag. I don't think of it as a humble brag. I think of it as the unending torment, which is my life. Um, it's like, oh, yeah, there's lizard people everywhere. Like, can't you see it? No, I don't actually believe there's lizard people everywhere. Maybe a couple, but like they're not in charge of anything. That's ridiculous. Um, no, actually, I don't believe in lizard people, just so everyone knows. I just like to make jokes about them. Um, or do I? Um, <laughs> sorry. You know me. There's a side of my personality that's just a, a total trickster. Um, and and he's kept in check by this deep ethical guy um, because, well, let me just speak from my experience. You know, um, and, and, and maybe, yeah, yeah, I'm doing this, I'm doing this live. Uh, it would be very easy, very, very easy for me to pull a heel turn. The relationships I have, the access I have, the modest sway that I have over the listening audience, the ability to shape the narrative. Um, I could start making demands on people. I could abuse my power. It's weird saying power, but it's there. I think about the danger of that all the time, all the time. I think about that because of I look at things like what's happening in the film blogger world right now because of just years of folks kind of wrestling between their experience of people and other people's experience of people and how those things con conflict. I, I look at it in the way media organizations leverage their power uh, in order to gain, you know, influence and control over access, uh, getting competitive edges on other people. NoPro has been around for a while now, um, and we're growing in terms of our staff. And one of the nice things is we have a fair amount of, uh, you know, a prestige. Um, people look to us to sort of help guide them. You know, part of me hates calling this the guide to everything immersive. Uh, or the voice of everything immersive. Another part of me says, no, that's, that's what we're doing. Um, that's who we are. Um, everything immersive itself has been, you know, an incredible expansion for us. And my goal always is to grow the comments. Now, would I like this to be my full-time job? Yeah. Um, as we build out Leia, the League of Experimental and Immersive Artists, and that's going, you know, maybe slower than we want, but we are doing that deliberately. Um, as we build that out, are there ethical considerations between my role as a media person and my role as an organizer over there? Oh, yeah. And there have been for years. Have people come to the show and said, how can you review someone's show when you're also friends with that person? And then maybe, you know, two weeks later, they get to see a review where I'm, you know, kind of brutally honest with my friends. Because as my friends and coworkers will attest to you, I will be brutally honest with you. 
even like like I can be both privately and in public. Uh, brutal but gentle, gently brutally honest. Why? Because for me, it's about the work. It's always about the work. That that's the way I stay sane. It's the way I view the world. It's about the things we build together, not the things I build for me. We have a pretty good thing going right now. And we're building it together. And I want you to be mindful of how things move forward across the board with everyone. I don't want us to be alarmist. We don't need to be alarmist. I don't want people panicking about permitting situations. I don't want people panicking about safety. I don't want people panicking about the way business is conducted. What I want is I want us to build a better world, to build a world that avoids the pitfalls that other branches of media and entertainment have. Why? Because we're building something now and we have the ability to do better, to learn from the mistakes of those who have gone before. Okay? So with that in mind, there's some fights I may get into in the next couple of weeks. I don't like getting into fights, but I anticipate some. Kind of can't believe I'm saying this. I'm kind of giving like fair warning. Um, because I want us to have a better world than the one that already exists. Top to bottom, that's what I see as being the artistic point of this form. So why repeat the mistakes of the past? So if you want to know where I'm coming from, as we go into spooky season, as we go into some, some choppy waters, that's where I'm coming from. And I'm always, always, always thinking about the ethical dimension of the work we do here and the work that others are doing. Okay. Full stop. That's statement of principles. I leave you there, good listener, as we head off into the future together. I'm going to bounce it up onto a positive note because we've had a couple of weeks now of like things are heavy and I just kind of landed on a heavy moment again because it is spooky season here in Los Angeles and there is plenty of good work going around. There's a bunch of debuts that are about to happen. I'm excited about lore. I'm excited about the Caden project. I'm excited about the New York team discovering a bunch of stuff. I'm excited about grief from Meredith Trinan. Uh, I'm excited about a, tons. I'm excited about tons. There's some stuff that we can't even talk about yet that I'm excited about. Um, where we go, we go together. All of us were on this ship. And I am so happy that you're here with me. And I am so honored 
that you uh, let me play the role that I do in this weird little world of ours. On that note, until next time, I'll see you at the show. <laughs> <laughs>